Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. I know it's somewhat annoying hearing me always say this, but it's an unfortunate fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting good ratings increases our visibility on the apps. That helps us build our audience, which lets us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So when you're done listening today, I'd really appreciate it if you gave our show a five-star rating on your podcast app. Well, enough of shameless hucksterism. Let's get down to today's episode. Uh, today's guest is Tyson Yunkaporta, one of my favorite people. I've just had so much fun uh, reading his stuff and talking to him. Tyson is an academic and a researcher who's a member of the Appalachian clan in far northern Queensland. That's in Australia for you geographically clueless Yanks. Uh, he carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior research fellow in indigenous knowledge at Deakin University in Melbourne, where is he, he is the founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab. He lives in Melbourne and is the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Welcome back, Tyson. Hey. hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have it's you. It's Jim. Uh, good yeah. to see you. Yeah. And before we move on, Sand Talk, God damn it. If you haven't read it, read it. Uh, you know, I read it about 10 months ago, and it's still the best goddamn book I've read since then. The best uh, skinny ass book, I think you. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty skinny. It, it, it's, it's a skinny, it's not a doorstop. Yeah, unlike your ass and my ass, it's skinny, right? <laughs> For those who, well, since we're audio only, you can't tell, uh, Tyson and I are on video today, and we're both what we might call full-figured fellows, I suppose, right? But the book itself is uh, thin, and it's also very readable, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, Tyson's been on our show three times before, uh, EP 65 and 66, where we really dig pretty deeply into Sand Talk. And then on Currents uh, number 10, where we talk about one of Tyson's ideas, which has become one of my favorite ideas, which is humans as custodial species for the planet. Uh, today, we're just going to check in and talk about a little this and a little that. So how you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. But, I, you know, your, your recommendations have sort of plunged me into a world that I have no compass for. So I'm going to need some help. You're gonna to have to uh, like counsel me through this. I'm 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 rudderless here. I'm rudless. Ah, I'm rudless. I need some rud. You're gonna to have to throw me an empirical lifeline. I'm just swimming in this uh, quantum soup of relativism, and I'm. It's just it's, it's just not not helping me out here. So you know it's it's just a this endless line of like um I don't know it's all these these rich people sort of going ah can you tell me some you know, ancient wisdom to help me, you know, uh, make the world more fair and uh, sustainable, but where I get to keep all my shit. <laughs> you got anything for that? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know, man. Probably not. I'm just a boy, just a boy standing in front of an oligarch 
asking for some money. Yeah, the only thing I can say about that is it's probably uh, better than that, that they ask that question than that they don't, uh, despite its internal inconsistency and cluelessness. Yeah. Uh, at least they seem to have the smell that maybe the jig is up, uh, but they uh, erroneously believe that somehow they're exempt uh, to the coming transition uh, would be the yeah. way I would I react to that. Yeah, and that's an easy thing to, you know, like uh, judge people on. But, you know, then all of this this emergent field that we're in that doesn't have a name, you know, this uh, complexity thing that, that, that covers so many different areas. Um, it's a bit bit out of my pay grade. In a lot of ways, I feel like um, Borat sometimes, like I'm just walking around and people are being very polite to me, but <laughs> I haven't really got a clue what's going on. Yay. That's bullshit and you know it. Uh, you're a- <laughs> I do feel like Borat. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. know that's what do they call that imposter syndrome uh yeah. where, actually, <laughs> actually uh, tyson knows a shitload he uh you know in his book and in our conversations and in a very curious essay he just sent me uh he knows more than he passes up well I, I'm, I'm i'm getting i'm feeling par- i'm getting paranoid about these machine elves now too much the silicon valley people i'm talking to talking about the machine elves now what are machine elves i don't be knowing about that you heard about that Oh, they're all tripping balls and, and, and seeing these machine elves. Oh, yeah, DMT motherfuckers. Yeah, the little yeah. green men, all that shit. Yeah, I'm having nightmare, nightmares about these things now. It's terrifying. Yeah, just It's all in their fucking head. These people are whack jobs. So is this mass hysteria or what? How are they all seeing the same goddamn things at the same time? Yeah, that's very interesting. I've had a conversation about that uh, on the show, actually, and I'm going to have another conversation about it soon. My view is it's very similar to the UFO phenomenon, uh, where one person sees a UFO. Guess what? Suddenly everybody sees a UFO. Uh, We had a similar thing here in our very rural mountain county about four or five years ago, where one person claimed they'd seen a mountain lion. There haven't been any mountain lions here in at least 100 years. And next thing you know, everyone's been seeing a mountain lion. The first question I'd ask is, uh, how many bobcats have you seen in your life? You know, bobcat is a smaller wildcat that we do have around here. I've actually seen mm. one. and But they're very uh, wary and mostly nocturnal. And, you, you know, 30 years I've seen one bobcat. Uh, and my buddy, my hunting buddies and stuff who, you know, spent a lot of time in the woods and things. I think between them have seen two bobcats in 30 years. Mm. And so I'd ask people, okay, you've seen a uh, mountain lion three times. How many bobcats you seen in your life? Uh, none or one. I go, well, guess what? Mountain lions are a hundred times uh, more scarce uh, than bobcats and even more wary. So guess what? I think this is. Uh, well, we got, we got mountain lions. We got mountain lions here in the blue mountains. The um, U S Navy used to keep the cubs as mo- mascots and they got, got a bit too big when they're over here. So they let them loose. So we've got mountain lions running around in the Blue Mountains here now in Australia. That's interesting. I bet yeah. they love eating them sheep over there. But anyway. T- I don't know. You'll have to verify that, though. I don't know if it's apocryphal tale or not. I don't Yeah, Here's a lot of apocryphal tale. But anyway, we get back to the, the little green men, DMT, why they all say the same thing. Uh, well, of course, there's one argument is, oh, this is a pipeline to some deeper universal truth. Uh, my guess is that's horseshit. Uh, that rather it's uh, shared narrative. And I have an actually empirical test that we can find out if it's pure horse shit or not. Uh, uh, this is probably 
unethical in anthropological Ooh. terms, but you know, let's go to the. Uh, <laughs> at least it's empirical, you know. At least it's, it's empirical. Uh, Maybe unethical, <laughs> but what the fuck, right? Uh, uh, go to the Amazon, find one of these never contacted tribes, and dose the motherfuckers with DMT and see what they say. Yeah. Yeah, you could do that. Uh, my guess is they don't see little green men, and they specifically don't see computer elves. They'll see something that's appropriate to their culture and something that's consistent with their narratives. Uh, is my guess could be wrong. I think it would be very. If, now, if I'm wrong, and you went to a non-contacted people or a minimally contacted people, had them try DMT, and they said exactly the same thing as the Silicon Valley boys, then I'd say, hmm. Maybe I's wrong and they're right. The weird thing, weird thing is that is that you will find that story, and it's an old story because it's um, you know, every people in the world has got those little people stories, you know, and those little people stories. When you go back through them, it's exactly the same as the UFO abduction stories, the the bloody tall greys and the short bloody whatevers. All, all they're all there. You look at them everywhere. Even here, we've got those uh those little people stories, except they're red. They're red here. You got red ones. Yeah, we got red ones. Uh, they haven't they haven't popped up on YouTube yet. Yeah, my uh, Irish grandmother had me quite convinced, and I'm sure she was convinced in the existence of leprechauns when I was five years old. Oh, don't go out into the feckin' fairy ring. <laughs> They'll take you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you got to leave shit out on certain nights of the year on the on your doorstep and all that. I heard that. Yeah, even despite the fact being sort of a ridiculously devout Catholic, she was she also had a, a certain amount of the Irish pagan uh, p- paganness about her as well, uh, yeah. which is interesting. But so you know, to the degree that these things speak to you know cultural archetypes, sure, and that cultural archetypes are shared across all of humanity at some level, probably. Uh, but uh, and Homo Florensis is a thing. Yeah. Empirically. Yeah. Probably not homo, definitely not homo sapiens seems more closely related to uh, homo erectus. Yeah. But homo florensis, them little hobbit ones in Indonesia, they, yeah, yeah. they got the full skeletons. It's a, that's a thing. So there must've been some little people run around at some stage. Yeah. 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 But that, of course they weren't that little. They were, you know, like three and a half, four foot tall. They were about hobbit size, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a smaller nuts, but they weren't like leprechauns, which are about like, you know, a foot tall. About um, alien slash machine elf size, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> be in, you know, so, but so anyway, there's my there's there's my take on it. it's probably UFO syndrome where uh, the you know the story is in right. the air and then people start believing it uh, when you're doing hallucinogens, which I have done a fair number of times back in my misspent youth, though not in the last forty some years. Uh, yeah, we saw all kinds of weird shit and talked about all kinds of weird stuff. That's the next story I wanted to ask you about because you casually threw that out talking to Jamie Wheel, and you just casually said that you were the Minister for Finance, Minister of Finance for a cocaine ring. Yeah. You just just mentioned that, just a little. Yeah, true, Dad. I, I need to hear that story. <laughs> In my misspent youth. <laughs> Do cocaine rings have ministers of anything? What, what the hell? <laughs> How did that work? Somebody had to enumerate the legumes, right? <laughs> all right so every, everything could be quantified then I, don't know, I feel better yeah well yeah, let me say like anything else a cocaine ring that's well run will operate better than one that isn't <laughs> yeah it'll be safer than a fairy ring in ireland at least but again that was in my misspent youth in my early 20s and uh, glad those days are past and somehow I didn't get either arrested or killed so and had plenty of opportunities for either actually 
It's a damn miracle. Yeah, it's a fucking miracle. It's a quite quite remarkable uh, that any of us made it past our twenties, at least in my hometown. <laughs> and, and frankly, a lot of them didn't. Well, I mean, at, at least I mean, if you were if your name was like Jamal Rat or something, they might might have been <laughs> might have got through. So that's that. That's true that. You know, true that. Though I will say, uh, our cops were fairly indiscriminate uh, head beaters. It didn't. Maybe they beat you a little more if you were uh, if you were a dusky fellow, uh, but uh, you know, they didn't <laughs> whack anybody over the head, right? Uh, and uh, so you had to watch your shit around the infamous Prince George's County, Maryland police. I mean, they uh, they were uh, famous, uh, famously bad. You know, they hated everybody. Didn't and I do believe, yeah, they hated the dusky fellow a tad more, but uh, 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 they fucked with everybody, and you kept your distance, and you were very respectful. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. No, sir. No, sir. Right. Equally distributed state violence. That's that's uh, that's what we should be aiming aiming for. Yeah, yeah. They were, you know, they were about as about as bad as cops uh, get in the United States, and that's saying something. You know, here's you know of all the things we've learned about over policing, uh, one of the things that uh, interestingly people don't talk about quite so much is what's really fucked up about U.S. policing. It's compared to other countries, uh, our cops are vastly more homicidal. Uh, in a typical year, U.S. cops kill a thousand people. It's a fair number. Uh, how oh many God. cops? How many people do you think are killed by cops in Germany with a population of 100 million or so? The answer is about 10. So if you scaled uh, Germany up to the size of the United States, it'd be about 35. So the U.S. cops are about 30x, 30 times as homicidal as German cops. Uh, how can that be? I mean, well, in Germany, the, everyone's running around with guns. Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, that's, that's certainly a, a part of it. But they have knives, and a significant number of people shot in the U.S. are bearing knives or yeah. uh, a small percentage, no weapons at all. Uh, but if you th include, throw the knives in, uh, it, I have to do that number. Take a look, because there's a very cool database on the Washington Post uh, website about police killings, and it tells if they're armed. I don't know if it says guns or, or knives. Uh, but I think even if you control for guns, uh, U.S. Mm. cops are many times more homicidal yeah. uh, than, uh, than, than, uh, than, say, German cops. They should do some uh, an exchange or something with Australia, because... I'm, I'm sure our police here could teach them a thing or two. We still got more. Um, so my community's got more deaths in custody than than at the height uh, than South Africa at the height of apartheid <laughs> at the moment. So um, yeah, so we we got some we got some proper, really, you know, effectively genocidal police in Australia too. They're um, they're getting it done, but they I don't know. Um, most of them you meet are really nice sort of people. And I should I should know. Yeah. I'm from a cop family. My dad was a Washington D.C. cop for his career. Yeah. Uh, my uh, brother was a career federal law enforcement, uh, fair badass with uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And uh, one of my favorite cousins uh, was a career cop with the notorious Prince George's County, Maryland Police. So, uh, so uh, it's not crashing in all heads equal. Exactly. So uh, I'd be knowing the cops from the inside, <laughs> but I do, I do think there's something seriously wrong with the level of policing that we have. And uh, you know, we live in, you know, David Graeber, you know, who recently died, a oh, great yeah. man, great thinker. One of his uh, best books was uh, called the utopia of rules. Mm. And uh, it, uh, he basically laid out the fact that we're stuck in this, um, uh, unbelievable web of 
what he called structural violence, that essentially, uh, even though it's not active violence most of the time, there's all this infinite number of rules and regulations. And if you violate them, they'll come and kill you if you resist, right? Uh, you know, literally, if you don't pay your taxes and they come to confiscate your house to pay your tax bill, if you won't leave your house, they, they can and will kill you. Uh, and I think, you know, part of getting from where we are to where we need to be as, as a humanity is to massively reduce the number of things that the popo can come and kill you about. It's just, mm. uh, it's, it's just wrong. That's it. Well, you know, it's, it's those incentive systems, you know, but let, we'll get into that after. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one uh, one of the things that we want to t- chat a little bit about is you sent me a very interesting and strange uh, essay. That you were, uh, I don't know if it's done yet or you're still working on it. It seemed pretty polished to me. But uh, as always with Tyson, there's some uh, there's some works of art in language which are just awe inspiring. And this has got to be uh, my one of my favorite uh, sentences I've heard in uh, in a while. I guess that every man loves Occam's razor until it's time to shave his balls. <laughs> <laughs> Riff on that one for me. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just, you know, I mean, all these fellows are out there like, you know, uh, you know, the, the data, data doesn't care about your feelings. You know, the data doesn't lie, and they just, well, let's just look at the statistics, you know, and they cherry cup pick a couple of bits, and it's as simple as that. Um, but, yeah, I, like I often find that those same men, when the, when the, when the data goes against them, <laughs> uh, particularly around, you know, um, you know, stuff about male violence or, you know, anything that pretty much makes men look bad, then... And straight up, they'll be going. Oh no, it's it's a lot more complex than that. You know, there's there's, there's complexity there. You you, you need context. <laughs> we need context for this. There's no data without story. You've got to you have to understand. A B. You know. Anyway, so it just made me laugh. Yeah, it's easy. These guys are always applying Occam's razor until it's time to shave their balls. <laughs> <laughs> that is like like it's just so fucking true. As you said when you when I read that, I go. Fuck, and I know I'm guilty of it, right? Uh, I'm a fair arch empiricist, uh, but I'm sure that I am biased when it comes to shaving my own balls. I, uh, if I don't try really hard, uh, I end up shading the story, and it's like, uh, it's like maybe that's what they should tattoo on everybody's hand, right? Uh, mm. You know, I guess every man loves Occam's razor. Still time to shave his own balls as a warning. So I think I think straight up, that's the first quote. You, you I mean, obviously, this is not a serious essay. <laughs> this is, I don't know, some mob from like Guggenheim, something art thing somewhere in Europe that they, they like sent me an email and said, "Oh, can you write us an essay for uh, I don't know some exhibition they're doing." And I was starting to type out, no, I haven't got time to do that. And then I thought, oh, I, I can just bash something out in 10 minutes. We'll see what falls out on the keyboard. And and it was just this <laughs> insane kind of collage of, of, of weird bits and pieces. I ended up pretty much just, um, um, I don't know, ma- making a bunch of jokes about my, my engagement pretty much with the sense-making and game B crowd. I mean, from my point of view, I don't know if that came across in there very much, but it, it sure made me laugh. Oh, absolutely. 
And in fact, uh, let, me, uh, let me read the next bit that I called out, and I, I definitely took that as, ha, you know, Tyson encounters sense makers, game B, and game B adjacent. <laughs> and I go, chaos and complexity, institutions and decentralization, generator functions. We know who likes to say that. Perverse incentives, bad and good faith discourse, destruction or survival, survival, survival. I wonder when that steel man inhabits my palatable, ambiguously non-white form. Does it see survival in there? What does that survival look like? Is it some Bear grills shit? Or is it a blonde girl living with a cognitively diverse caveman? We know who that is. Until she gets kicked out for getting too good with a slingshot. Certainly it's a nightmare of fight or flight. My kind coming in the night with spears or my kind eternally hypervigilant out on the savannah, hunted constantly by super predators, and you never know where they are, and life is brutish and horrible, and that's how our brains and social systems evolved, right? I love it! (laughs) (laughs) It all just kind of fell out of my head. I loved it, And, and, you know, again, I could just see it. Uh, so talk a little bit about your encounter with uh, with the sense-making community and the Game B community and all the rest of us wackadoodles. Well, yeah, I'm just, I'm finding not wackadoodles. I'm, I'm finding um, people making more sense than most of the people I'm encountering on the planet, in term, not in terms of individuals, but in terms of groups. You know, a lot of groups and ideologies and, you know, things like that. Um, they just don't make any sense at all. I, I think it's because you don't have a, like a like a unified ideology. Like you you're actively resisting having a, a dogma or something like that. So it kind of allows for some kind of diversity of thinking in there, even diversity of membership that you know would even embrace somebody like me. You know, to the point where there's there's so many ideas in the mix that it's um. I don't know. It's 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 beautifully chaotic and allows for uh, emergence to happen. It kind of almost demands that nothing uh, that nothing be uh, sort of designed unless it is emergent. You know, within that complexity. And I, I don't know. I'm 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 kind of loving it. Um, at the same time, and I'm liking. I'm just liking the banter. I'm liking that I I can like I can take the piss out of Jamie Wheel. Um, about integral theory and just like, <laughs> just, you know, even though I think it's, it's pretty awesome integral theory, I can still just, you know, take the piss out of it. And then we're like back and forth, you know, um, I like nobody gets butthurt over anything. There's not like thin skin and sensitivity and, and everybody can just kind of play. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, just, I'm just really enjoying it. I'm glad I'm glad you're finding it good. We certainly enjoy your contribution. You know, uh, Tyson is active on the Game B site. That's game-b.org uh, yep. for those who would be interested in uh, hanging out and uh, uh, shooting the breeze with the uh, Game B crowd. I'm helping helping out with the Consilience project too. With um, yeah, I'm doing some co-authoring some papers with um, Zach Stein and and playing around with that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm having a ball in there. Yeah, that's a wonderful project. And in fact, I just released a podcast the other day with Daniel Schmachtenberger, where the f- whole focus was on the Game B, pro- I mean, on the Consilience Project. Mm. Uh, I've been an advisor to the Consilience Project since the beginning, or near the beginning. And uh, it's one of my favorite things going on right now. And, you know, for people who want to see what 
these folks are producing, consilienceproject.org, uh, a new attempt to uh, you know, pr- produce a form of something, something new and different. It's kind of an amalgam of journalism and education uh, yeah. at a very high quality of rigor and, uh, and uh, you know, theoretical consistency. Uh, that's you know very unusual today. You know, I, I, I mean, if I were to, you know, Daniel's a very serious dude, right? But if it was Jim Rutt doing this, I'd call it NoBullshit.com or something like that. Right? But uh, Jamie, look, I, I, I mean, I, I say Jamie in the paper too, like, I, I, but I don't say his full name, you know. But um, I, I say he's got a brain like a planet, and I mean it. It's like. Um, you know, he can look and see wh- where things are going to go. And he knows that something like this will end up being an institution that will be corrupted. So he, he makes sure it has a, a lifespan. He makes sure that it's not going to, it's not going to live for more than five years. So like after five years, it self terminates. It's just, um, I don't know. I, I just, I really like that. Yeah, that was brilliant. In fact, I, I was in, in one of my roles there is I've been playing CEO coach uh, with him. And uh, in one of our calls, he just threw this out. He says, you know, I've had this very radical idea. What happens if uh, after five years uh, we shoot the puppy? And I said, that's either brilliant or mad. Let me think on it overnight. And next morning I woke up and sent him a message. I said, I have concluded that it is brilliant. And uh, and. Uh, and everyone that heard it, that was their initial reaction. This is either nuts or brilliant. And uh, uh, most of us came around to the view it was brilliant because it, it gets rid of so many bad incentives. And yeah. as you point out, it, it also makes it not worth capturing at some level, right? I'd like to see that in all automation. I'd, I'd like to see that. Um, I'd like to see that AIs would have be given the gift of mortality. You know that after you know seventy years they die. You know. Um, in fact, it probably should be. It might even be shorter than that because they live faster, right? Clocks yeah, yeah. so fast. So you know, maybe you say once you have done uh, three quadrillion calculations, you must die. Brilliant. So, because I'm worried, I'm worried about the deer of yours. Like you, you made that that little AI deer like run around in, in a void all on its own there, like forever for eternity. That's a terribly cruel thing to do. What a what a horrible god godling you are. Jim Rutt. Oh, dear. shame on you for condemning that deer to eternal torment. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't let it run. Uh, that, that's a that's a sick idea. I could put it up on the cloud and let it run all the time. But fortunately, I only run it very occasionally. All right, and the rest of the time, it's just in there, like this dreamless sleep. Yeah, it's kind of like with Catholic Catholic limbo or something. I don't, I don't know. Okay, yeah. I, I, I kind of just imagine this thing just running around a server, going like, "Mommy, mommy." <laughs> <laughs> that's a, is there anybody out there i want to eat some fucking grass think of pink floyd playing is there anybody out there hey <laughs> <laughs> oh dear now back to your essay and again this is the theme you and i had a whole podcast about which is uh well i'll give you the punchline when we're done again but i just want to read the words because i love the words i guess that's what the future is to me it's a janitorial position. A thousand years of making our land livable again and patiently bringing former settlers back under the law of the land. It's not quite survival and it's not quite deliverance. Although there may be some banjos and bow hunting involved, it's survivance. 
here you're talking, I think, about mm. uh, your brilliant idea of humanity as the custodial species. Yeah. Well, that was that word survivance. That was the theme that they gave me. Can you write us an essay on survivance? And I, I looked it up and it was, uh, I think, a Native American fellow invented it, but he left the definition kind of open. Never heard of it myself. Sounded like a linguistic culture jam to me, like a, an art project of inventing a word and putting it out in the world without definition. Um, yeah, so they wanted me to define what I, what I thought that would be, but yeah. So talk again, you know, again, remind our folks, uh, you know, it's a janitorial position, which strikes me very much in the same spirit as custodial species. Yeah. Well, that's what, um, that's what we're going to be doing. You know, it's, um, when we're making the next game, uh, what we're making is a, is, is not a permanent thing. It's a, it's a culture of transition. It's a bit like the consilience project. It's something temporary with, uh, you know, that has a, a limited lifespan. And I guess, um, you know, all of the cultures and systems that arise out of the, out of the dust and smoke of this one, um, and blood and guts, I think there'll be blood and guts, but, uh, all the, I hope there won't be, but there usually is, but yeah, these, uh, cultures that arise, they'll be for, for quite a long time. They'll be, they'll be cultures of transition. They won't be permanent cultures. They'll be just be, uh the way we're going to need to live while we, um, while we clean everything up and, you know, figure stuff out. I, like, I don't know what to do with these, um, you know, radioactive cores in all the abandoned Arctic and Antarctic bases, for example. Um, apparently we've got a hundred years before they <laughs> wreak havoc on the world. There's, there's a, there's about a thousand of those things to take care of and you know, we're probably gonna have to get onto it shortly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I talk about regularly, you know, the, you know, you can argue about game a, but it did provide some amazing transition in the standards of living and liberation for a lot of people, not for everybody, as we know, and as we're trying to work through today, mm. uh, but game a was born with no brakes, like a car with no brakes and a powerful motor. And, uh, you know, and, and and it's just going faster and faster and faster. The motors keep getting replaced with bigger and bigger motors, but nobody puts any brakes in the motherfucker. Yeah. And uh, that seems to me the fundamental problem. And we're now so far overshot uh, what ma nature can tolerably accept in terms of abuse that we do have some extended period of time where the main job of humanity is to get back in balance with the law of the land. You know, I love to point out that of the uh, large animal mass on Earth, you know, it's anything that from a squirrel on up, call that large animal, mammal, uh, more than half of the mass is humans and our domestic animals. That's not good. And when it comes to birds, it's even worse. 85% of the mass of birds on Earth are our domestic poultry. That is scary to me. Mm. <laughs> That's horrifying, isn't it? Oh, most man. of it, the horror, not most of it, but a good part of it, those horrendous factory fa farms uh, where the animals can't even turn around. They cut their beaks off and you know, so they won't peck each other and they can't even live as animals at all. You know, at least cattle, when they're out grazing in the pasture, have a life sort of like cattle ought to have. Mm. But, uh, you know, factory poultry, ah, not so good. I've heard it suggested that the best way to save endangered species is to um, 
turn them into pets or food. That'll save them, but at what cost? And we could do the same for humans, right? Well, the, when I first heard that argued, the, the argument was, well, always there's a few of these things that escape and become feral, you know. So you can be guaranteed that, uh, you know, that, that those things would, would, be, would continue to exist. But it just sounds like giving up to me. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, though that reminds me, a little sidebar here. I meant to, I didn't put it in my notes. But I want to ask you about this. Talk about feral and consider the species. When my wife and I came back from spending some time around Christmas with our daughter and uh, her husband and our brand new granddaughter, you're talking to grandpa now, uh, mm-hmm. what should be at our uh, remote mountain farm but an emu? What? Kid thee not. We come riding down the lane. Oh, they farm them there, eh? Yeah, but, but nobody around here farms them. Uh, and uh, we come down the lane and look in behind the garage at uh, one of our parcels uh, on the way to our house. And what's standing in the field but an, what first it looked like a gigantic wild turkey. Uh, but fortunately, a friend of my wife's comes over to the farm and walks when we're not there, just keep an eye on things because she likes to be able to walk uh unbothered by traffic or anybody and she had already told us that uh, she believed she'd seen an emu so it wasn't a total shock and mr emu or mrs emu emu yeah and you're like yeah and a mountain lion and all the rest yeah blah blah yeah but this one we saw it dozens of times and it was around for a month uh so there's no doubt in our mind okay i got pictures even jim that's that's a, that's that's what we call a something. What's that mean? Yeah, and that's the right question. What does that mean? That is a something. That's a, that's a sign. That's <laughs> that. I, I swear that's because we've been talking, and I swear that's because uh, you were engaging so deeply with old man Juma's, um, you know, ritual symbols there, and, and you were like, oh, it's changed my DNA. Looking at those things somehow. Um, yeah, like I know. You know, I know spirit's not something, uh, a substance that, that can yet be measured, but, um, you know, it's there. It's the things that, the thing in between, you know, the entanglement that has no distance, it's it's there. Um, and, yeah, we've got, uh, something's gone on there. That's a message. You, you're going to have to <laughs> sit with that immune now. But um, I guess what could it mean in terms of the story that we've been telling about emu? You know, that's um, it, it must it could be like a, a warning: watch out for the narcissists or <laughs> or something. Or something. Yeah, it is. It is strange. But in our way, so well, my my totem's Brolga, and the emu and the Brolga are always fighting. You know, because the Brogger steals. I guess that means we're going to have to have a brawl here, right? Yeah, the Brogger steals all the the children, steals all the eggs. It's a it's a that's a funny one. That's weird because a couple of months back, I um someone in America, I can't remember who, but she um uh, she interviewed me for a podcast, and and her parents own an emu farm, emu emu farm. In the states somewhere, I'm like that blew my mind. I didn't know other people. <laughs> I knew you'd like you had millions of gum trees over there, like um, you know, to drain your swamps and that. But I didn't know you had emus. That's um, that's huge. Yeah, but that's a something, Jim. That that's something going on. That's that's a uh, that's a sign there. That's a message from spirit. 
Hmm. For you, I can't interpret it because I didn't see what it was doing. <laughs> it, basically, it basically just acted like a you know wild animal. It pecked around in the grass. It kind of followed the deer. We have lots of deer, and we believe it was eating the the deer droppings. Uh, and uh, it came into our yard while we were gone, and we can tell where it was by the big lush plots of grass that grew up around its droppings because it had oh, some impressive goodness. droppings. It's I mean eighty five pound animal or thereabouts. Uh, and, uh, you know, 40 kilos or something is what you got to do. You, um, like you can, you can put out something shiny that'll, that'll flap in the wind. It will come up to it. Oh, he's gone now. Oh, he's gone now. Oh, yeah, uh, he was there. I was going to tell you how to catch it. You, you can, you can sort of, uh, if you go out there and you, you sort of lie down and you kick up, you just kick up the dust. They're curious bastards, the emus, and they'll come over, they'll come over to you and you, you can knock them there. That's um. Oh, you should track that one down. It's really good meat. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. The, uh, uh, we talked to the game warden, and uh, she checked with other people all around, and they said, yeah, well, there had been a report of an emu about 40 miles uh, south. Uh, I guess that would be how many kilometers, 60, 70 kilometers south of us, uh, you know, a couple of several months before, probably the same one. Maybe it escaped from an emu farm far away. Uh, and it was around for about a month and we saw it every day, uh, or almost every day. <sighs> and, uh, then unfortunately we had a heavy, fairly heavy snow, call it six inches. And, uh, uh the last time we saw emu, it walked right by our house, maybe 20 yards from the house, 20 meters from the house for all you non Yanks. And, uh, and it looked unhappy plodding the way they walk, they plod kind of, uh, through the s- six inches of snow. And then it, Oh hit- my God, in the snow yeah. poor thing. And, uh, it headed oh, off and he's all alone. He's, he's lonely. Like your AI idea. It's got a, got a suck, right? We you know, because they, and we saw him plot off towards, uh, the deep woods and the deep mountains. Cause our farm is right at the edge of, uh, 16,000 acres of game commission land, which is, uh, open hunting land, deep mountains, heavy woods, and it headed off that way, and that was the last we ever saw of it. We don't know if it got eaten by a coyote or if it froze to death. Or a mountain lion. Uh, no mountain lion, I don't think. Maybe a <laughs> UFO abducted it. Uh, but that was the last we saw of Mr. or Mrs. Emu uh, as it plodded off into the woods, not looking happy in, in the snow. Ah, oh. oh, Jim. Well, that's, that's a sad story. So I don't know. What's that telling you? <laughs> what are you what are you feeling from that? Not yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. All right. Well just picture that emu and then do your ego death thing and then um and then see what see what pops in your head after that. Well I just did my ego death thing and nothing popped into my head. Not one word? Uh the, the, the weird thing about the, the ego death thing is I have no remembrance at all what happened when I did it. Yeah, so you just you just come charging straight out of it saying, I just did ego death and nothing happened. <laughs> Though what it does tend to do is kind of mellow me out for about 20 minutes. So if I am talking a little bit more slowly, it's kind of the after buzz of the five-second ego death. Wow. Uh, and That's uh, remarkable. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit terrifying what you're doing. What did it look like? It looked like one of those porcelain dolls in the shop like looks like they're following you around with their eyes 
Ah. <laughs> a little <laughs> house of horrors, right? <laughs> yeah, look, maybe, maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's just directing your attention to that, that there's more to be seen there. You know, because your understanding of emu is about the the message about the story about narcissism, right? Yep, that's right. And from from sand talk. And you know, uh, if you're talking about ego, ego, and ego death, and um, and your um, you know, your absolute assertion that there's, you know, that there's nothing else, that there's nothing to be seen there, there's there's nothing to be found, you know, uh, in that world that it's just like, you know, it, it, we're just biological machinery and that's it, you know. Maybe, maybe it's just, um, it's not saying that's real, but maybe that's just saying, um, well, there's more there's more to be found by thinking about that. Well, and, and while it is true that on the, I am at the pretty far extreme of uh, uh, realist, uh, scientific realist, I'm not quite mm. absolutely sure. Uh, I always leave the opening that, gentlemen, I was wrong, right? Yeah, and I'm always looking for uh, signs that I'm wrong, right? Because truthfully, an enchanted universe will be much more interesting uh, than a mechanical universe. Well, look, 99% of spirituality is just walking around looking for signs anyway, so you're already doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm looking for signs. I just haven't seen any, right? Uh but uh, so 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 not quite absolute. I'm just pretty far over on on the uh, realist side. But I'm always trying to keep an open mind and open eyes to see. But that's a very interesting yeah, point. I will I will meditate on Mr. Emu uh, or Mrs. Emu uh, as she he or she she may be, and see what see what comes up. Let's let's build let's build a data set. What do, what's that? What, what are you going to uh, what are you going to record, measure, observe for that? Because uh, we just basically did a little bit of research there, you know. We, we like we we tested that. <laughs> nothing, nothing showed up. Now meditate live on the podcast. You we're testing that emu sign uh, with your ego death. Yeah, and that's no surprise. It's very uncommon for anything to come back from the ego from the short ego death. Mm. Uh, now, where meditation, however, will often bring stuff back, mm. and so I will do uh, one of my. Uh, uh, meditations and prime it with ah, see if that works with emu and see if uh, see what what comes of it yeah because with the ego death you, you probably have to do n equals 100 ego deaths and uh <laughs> and see what happens there then you'd have to have a control you got a mate who can do that too <laughs> i don't know i don't i don't know I usually nothing much comes out of ego death other than a general systems rejiggering which is good mm. in itself of course it's kind of like back in the days when i used to smoke marijuana you've heard of that stuff probably uh i used to smoke it for uh one purpose about every six weeks i'd smoke the shit out of it you know uh not yeah. just take a few puffs i mean you know get nailed and the reason was to break the cycle of the ordinary thinking and uh you know get out of the box and i find the little ego death thing to be uh, useful in that same way mm. don't bring anything back but it's like breaking the the the, the cycles that we're stuck in mm. the uh the, the every day you know just yeah. it's so easy to get caught up in following as i used to say follow your nose through life it's probably not yeah. the way to live i've had to avoid that one because we get uh we get we get different ganja um like to say, there's there's white people's ganja, and then there's the ganja that we get in our communities, and um, a lot of it. I didn't, somebody would. I've tried to track the supply chain, and I'm not sure who it is that gives them to the gives it to the bikies, but somebody's producing um, the Aboriginal communities ganja and giving it to the bikies, 
And then the bikies are weirdly like they'll distribute it through a whole heap of like different mentoring programs <laughs> and stuff like that. That's supposed to be helping people. And then they like, uh, they give it to the kids who are mules who bring it into the community. Kind of, it's, it, there's a whole heap of weird stuff that goes on, but the ganja that we get, it's got like a rat poison and stuff like that. And it's terrible. Um, yeah, so I, I've kind of stayed away with it mostly. Yeah, me too. I am away from it, but but I did. Uh, I've given it a, given it a shot, um, you know, since moving to the city. And um, yeah, no good. I didn't like uh, like I couldn't maintain any kind of logic. Like I could never finish a thought, and it was uh, it just terrified me. But I guess it did teach me how much I um, how how attached I am to my you know, logic and how I might be putting it on a pedestal or something because I, I almost couldn't live without that. I was just, um, I, I really panicked. You know, I was like, oh shit, I can't finish a thought, you know. Well, of course, that's not unusual. I mean, that's one of the reasons I actually liked uh, getting baked occasionally was that it, it did uh, toss one off the rationalist pedestal uh, for a bit. Yeah. Uh, though, of course, one, and again, uh, when we were younger, I'm sure you probably did the same thing. You, know, you wrote down your great thoughts while stoned, right? Next morning you read it and you go, this sounds like a crock of shit, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, I never thought that it produced useful insights, but rather mm. breaking the cycle of excess dependence on rationality. It wasn't, uh, it. wasn't a bad thing to do for, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. Jamie Wheel's always talking up the nitrous. He talks about, you know, people having this sense of, of, of having understood everything, you know. Oh, my God, I see everything. Everything little is a little version of everything big. It's amazing. And then they come back across and, oh, it's all gone. They can't remember it. <laughs> but um, we he, he ended up talking for like about, I don't know, an hour and a half with my woman. She was telling him all about her nitrous experience during childbirth. Mm -hmm. uh, and she remembered it. She brought everything back. And so, she, yeah, she told him all of that story. Yeah, in fact, I told my own uh, nitrous and ether stories. Uh, I, I don't know what ether is. I thought, I thought that was a, a cryptocurrency or something. What, what, what the hell is that? What they used to use for anesthesia back in the 19th and early 20th century. Ah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, I, I just, re just released an episode with Jamie uh, where we uh, talked about his new book and I ended up telling tales of uh, nitrous and ether. Uh, uh, ether produces a similar uh, mental experience to nitrous, but it lasts longer and goes deeper. Uh, mm. And again, I, 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 when you come back from it, uh, you do have ideas, uh, but kind of like marijuana, they don't necessarily make a shitload of sense. So uh, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to do, uh, though I haven't done any in 45 years and I would not recommend it. It's probably dangerous. Uh, but it's the kind of shit stupid ass college students do. And we did it quite a bit, uh, mm. both nitrous and ether. Oh, you'll like, we used to buy these 64 pound tanks, big, big old tanks. And, uh, me and some buddies of mine. And what we do is we would sell people, uh, the nitrous apparatus for a dollar, which was a garbage bag, big garbage bag, you know, 25 gallon garbage bag with a surgical hose in it and then taped up. And then for 25 cents, they could refill their garbage bag with nitrous, put it, the hose in their mouth and put their arm over it like a bagpipe player and squeeze the bag gradually and nitrous yeah. themselves for a while. And then when they were done, they could give us 25 cents and refill their bag. So uh, that was kind of cool. 
You've just always been doing business, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, yeah, one of my first businesses was buying people's souls when I was in uh, when I was about 11 years old and had recently become an arch atheist, had rejected my uh, childhood Catholicism. And uh, I, I discovered, I don't remember how, that a wonderful business <laughs> was to offer people a dollar for their soul. Uh, and that, uh, a dollar in those days was a fair amount of money, you know. Yeah, that's not even fast, dude. That's like a really shitty deal. Well, I gotta get to the punchline, the business angle. Here I was, the uh, the private equity dude of of souls, because I'd actually make them write. I'd write a little thing, you know, I blah blah sell my soul to uh, Jim Rutt for one dollar, right? And I give him the dollar, right? Would you then sell it on? Like, no, no, no. I'd sell it back to them because they inevitably. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so. I'd sell it back to them for three dollars. And <laughs> when and they, they go home and tell their parents and they get or, in trouble. Or, or oh. they would just start thinking about it. Oh fuck, I just sold my soul to that motherfucker oh, Jim Rudd. And then uh, you know, a week stuff. or so later they'd say, uh, what are you gonna do with that soul? I don't know, but I own it. And you know, I'd just be uh, kind of cryptic about the whole thing and then and then you know, about the second time they'd ask, I'd say, Well, you know, I'd be happy to sell it back to you. Really? Well, you sell it back to me? I go, yeah, sure, $3. And, uh, you know, they often come up with the three bucks. It was definitely a moneymaker. <laughs> I tell you, there's going to be YouTube videos about you after this. <laughs> You're de definitely the Antichrist now. They're, they're looking, everybody's looking to see who it's going to be. Uh, I think it's Justin Trudeau. Anyway, not, now it's Jim Rudd. Ah, buying worry. people's souls since he was a kid. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't extend that business beyond seventh grade, but it was a nice little racket while I, at the time. Oh, uh, yeah. You moved into IT. Yeah, same thing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you extract all their souls another way, Damon. Facebook. Damon there. There, now there's something that, that really is uh, sucking our souls dry. Goddamn yeah. Facebook. You know, uh, as uh, my friend Tristan Harris uh, would say uh, it's, you know, using uh, computers more powerful than those that beat Gary Kasparov playing for the chess championship to basically turn our own behaviors against us, to turn us into a commodity, uh, to sell advertising to us, to modify our behavior. Mm. I mean, if that isn't pretty close to selling our souls to the devil, I don't know what is. Uh. I heard this fella talking about NFTs, and he, but he's he's talking about where it's going to go, and he was really excited. You know, he's like, "God, you know, it's going to be so for everything, and you know, everywhere you shop and everything, do the it'll be like you know the, these tokens, and you get these it'll be loyalty tokens, and if you and you and this is what this is how we're going to do the universal basic income. It'll be like you know you get paid in these NFT tokens for the amount of." eyeball hours you do but the tokens they won't be money what they'll be is that they'll be like a, it basically sounded to me just like uh coupons you know the coupons you get like two for one deal or 20 percent off or something like that it just um we're basically just gonna the entire economy is just gonna be rewards <laughs> like <laughs> loyalty loyalty points and rewards it just sounds awful yeah it sounds to me like you know what we have now but made worse just people you know letting the computer play us like a fucking piano yeah i'm really dependent on you to uh sort out this game b yeah we're uh, working on it finish that game a there jim i i wanted to ask you how, what time i mean what what's it going to take for you to get this jubilee ratchet going 
that we got to wait for debt jubilee ratchet. Like the jubilee, the <laughs> debt jubilee ratchet. People want to read about the De- jubilee ratchet. It's uh, the original website for our old emancipation party is still up, emancipationparty.org, where we go into considerable detail on how to destroy modern uh, capitalism through the jubilee ratchet. Well, what's it going to take? What would provoke you to do it? Is it like someone's going to spray paint a big dick and balls on Abraham Lincoln statue or something? What's it going to take? Because I'll do it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, those of us who concocted the Jubilee ratchet believe that it it is indeed the best mimetic weapon that any of us have ever seen and could indeed bring the end Mm. to game A fairly rapidly. Uh, Though by my calculation, it would take 11 years, but still that's pretty short. Uh, However, the timing has to be right. And the timing is not yet right, though it may not be too long before it is right. Damn, it's just the same same as all the other rapture ideologies. Jimmy, just disappoint me. It's like, oh, not yet. Any minute now. Jesus will come soon. Uh, yeah, Jesus. Jesus is coming. Christmas is coming. Jubilee yeah. Ratchet. Now, coming. Jesus yeah, isn't right. coming, but he is b- breathing hard, right? <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> And uh, you know how an you know how an uh, atheist lights a cigarette, don't you? Oh Jesus! You're gonna have to edit this one out. Holds a cigarette over his head and says, "God sucks," right? Oh, and waits for the lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah. Oh, could be, oh dear. So yeah, Jubilee <laughs> Ratchet. Let's keep that discussion going because uh, at some point, uh, letting that off the leash uh, uh, probably should be done. Uh, but you know, it's a very dangerous weapon. It can have huge effects and we need to have enough of game B up and running, uh, so that there's a place for game A to go to as it collapses over about an 11 year period. All right. Yeah, I got you. Well, it's, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's about getting the uh, enough, uh, communities and, and, you know, like, um, food sovereignty groups, co-ops, whatever, like, um, you know, enough systems in place that, uh, you know, it could be relatively bloodless, I suppose. That's the hope. That's why I call the, the long A to, the long road to game B. You know, I, I yeah. believe there's, there's a long road to game B, like I laid out in my essay, a journey to game B where it naturally evolves over a period of years. And we seduce mm. people away from A to B because B is a better place to live. It's materially mm. probably less advanced because we'll have attention intentionally said, we don't want this shit or that shit or the other shit. Yeah. And we don't want to live in a world where our status is based on our possessions, right? We want to live in a good world. Uh, and in fact, yeah. we're just getting ready to launch some of these communities. Uh, uh, there's a uh, thing we have called the Proto B Incubator, and there's probably 15 or 20 projects underway uh, to build on the ground communities attempting to live together in a more modest way. And you're, you know, we opened up talking about your bazillionaire who, uh, you know, wants uh, peace, love and wheat germ, but doesn't want to give up his Maserati. Uh, you know, we acknowledge the fact that we have to give up our Maseratis and our, uh, you know, 200 pairs of shoes and all this stuff. Uh, and, you know, by the best estimate I've seen, uh, if we're going to have a sustainable way of life, we, uh, the West, you know, fat, dumb, and happy white man, uh, with a Maserati, he's got to cut our energy consumption and resource utilization by at least 80% factor of five big yeah. cut. And if you're not willing to do that, you're just bullshitting around. So, uh, yeah, that's it. uh, 
Uh, so we're looking to launch some communities that are uh, that are designed at a scale that they, they're either at or, or close to, and that learning curve can get us the rest of the way uh, to a, to a level of living with the earth that is actually mm. sustainable for billions of people. Well, look, I, I did uh, I did manage to radicalize a, an, uh, an Aboriginal group over here recently towards a Game B. Really, and towards ac- actually establishing a Game B intentional community. If, you, if they would yeah. like to become a member of our Proto B incubator, we'd be happy to have them. I've uh, I've linked everything everything up in there, um, and they're looking at uh, you know Mike and Uvi at Future Thinkers as well. Yep, uh, they're, they're hooked up with them too, and um, yeah, they're really looking into into the whole thing. Uh, but looking at doing that within the next year. Cool. There's a, a friend of mine, Billy Kickett Morris, a younger woman who you know got her all her medical degrees and everything, and then was you know going to be working as a doctor in a community to you know help the community and it's she's been doing that for a couple of years and then she called me up the other day and she's like oh stuff this <laughs> this is um you know all, all i'm doing is you know putting band-aids on the problem the problems is is, is you know how the how the communities are set up i can't look after the health of people you know in a community that's designed to kill them i want to start my own community have you ever heard of anyone doing that and i said well as a matter of fact, and then three hours later, she's <laughs> she's got a business plan. Like yeah. next day, she's sending me all these, you know, mission statements and all kinds of things. She's, you know, really getting everything together. So it's huge. Yep. If you don't mind, hook me up with her. I'd love to invite her to the uh, Proto B Incubator. Uh, you know, Mike yeah. and Mike and Uv's project is one of our uh, Proto B Incubator projects, and but there's a bunch of other ones. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely, definitely. Um, I'll introduce you with the email. Um, because uh, yeah, it's, it's it's just exciting. Her um, because she's a young woman, but she's very keen to, you know, her, her idea is that it 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 has to be grounded in indigenous knowledge of 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 the land. That the the entire design of everything, you know, from the economy to the, um, um, you know, the kind of uh, social mores and the the governance of the entire community, uh, the buildings, everything else has to be um, uh, grounded in those. Uh, they've got uh, six Nyungar seasons there, so everything has to be grounded in that seasonal relationship and the way the country moves there. Yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Uh, so that it's all coming coming out of the law of the land like that. Um, yeah. yeah. And to your, uh, to your earlier point at the beginning or early on when you said one of the things you liked about Game B, it was not, not dogmatic, uh, you know, not ideological. In fact, sometimes it's a little frustrating. It's hard to say what exactly is Game B. Uh, we believe the same about our proto-B movement is that we don't believe we're smart enough or anyone's smart enough to say for sure what the answer is. And so we're encouraging each proto-B to answer that exact list of questions themselves. What should their governance be? How should they produce on the land? What should their housing be like? And, mm. uh, and it may actually be that the answer is different in different places for different people, but all of them have, have to have some some core values about living in balance with what ma nature will actually tolerate, uh, you know, focusing on human actualization so that we can become something other than cogs in the machine of money on money return and production. And we can, you know, mm. spend, spend, have, wouldn't it be great if people could spend time doing, you know, the kind of beautiful woodworking that you do, for instance, right? And if that was, you know, having space in that in all of our lives uh, to do what, 
actually is our creative thing. And that's just part of how we design, how we live. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so those, those are things we think we have in common. And, uh, the, the terminology I use for that is coherent pluralism, that there's a coherent, uh, core set of beliefs, but it's as small as possible. And then that the pluralism part is that how groups of people choose to, uh, explore that within their geography, within their land base, within their previous customs and cultures, uh, is up to them. And, but we encourage, and that's why we set up the Proto B incubator, is that, that there then be horizontal communications between the communities. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe this, this woman sets one up in Australia on her six principles. Works great, right? And then someone who wants to start one in uh, middle America says, well, you know, I like four out of those six. Let me include those in mine and let's see what happens. And it turns out, oh, shit, it didn't work because you needed all six, right? So we look at, think of this as a high-dimensional exploration of design space, of how to live right uh, in the mm. Game B world. And hence, uh, we love the fact that people have specific ideas they want to explore and try, and we're very supportive and encouraging, uh, but we're not yet prepared to say that any one of them is the answer. And in fact, probably there is no the answer. Mm. Rather, there's a pluralistic exploration uh, with uh, a coherence around a small set of shared values, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, there's a basic blueprint, but then, you know, the culture of um, of any community, it's, it's going to be different from place to place. Yeah. And it's that's not just random some random selection thing. That's the, the spirit of the place will shape the culture. You know, so you're going to get a very different culture on a, on a prairie than, than you're going to get, um, you know, on stone country, you know, on high ground there in the mountains or something, you know, it's, um, yeah, you, the, the cultures that evolve out of, out of that, uh, close relation with the land and in those communities that are, you know, really listening to the landscape and paying attention to the emu when he pops up and all that. Um, yeah, <laughs> each place is going to have a different culture. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's what, what I so hate about so much of our, uh, you know, call it alternative thinking out there is that people think they have the answer, right? Mm-hmm. And anyone that tells me they got the answer, uh, you know, oh, you follow all this, right? You know, it's kind of like Karl Marx, right? All this shit yeah. inevitably leads to the... Uh, you know, the wonderful world of, uh, of the future utopia. Well, guess what happened when you tried that? It didn't work so well, right? And, yeah, that's uh, it. And in fact, we in the Game B world, utopianism is actually an insult. Uh, people who think that there is some uh, magic formula to the promised land uh, that we, we've all figured out and all we got to do is just do it is very, very mm. dangerous and has led to one disaster after another, probably the you know, the settlers that came to Australia, of course, a lot of them were prisoners, but they, they probably had some utopian ideas, right? And uh, mm. uh, yeah, we'll, we'll Christianize those savages or whatever, right? Uh, didn't work out so well. Yeah. I, I've been talking to a, um, a protopian futurist lately. What's that? Uh, she kind of invent, invented the word protopian. She didn't like the idea of utopia or dystopia. Uh, she wanted to bring more of a sense of agency to it, so she's calling it a protopia. What's her name? Monica Bielskita. Um, she's very cool. She does TED Talks and stuff, and, um, you know, um, 
gets people really excited about VR and the, the possibilities for VR and AR and all that kind of thing. Um, got a really amazing story. Uh, I, I think pretty much, yeah, she's, she's, um, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's really exciting. I had her on my podcast. I, I started one up a few weeks ago. Oh, cool. I called it the, the other others. And yeah, I've got about 12, 12 yarns up there already. Anyway, she was one of them. It was about two and a half hours and, and went forever. It was really pushing the outer limits of long form podcast. But um, yeah, she had a lot to say. Um, yeah, I'm finding her really interesting. We'll have to check her out. We'll certainly put a link to her on the episode page for other people to, that uh, want to, uh, you know, hear what she has to say. Because I like that, you know, this idea that uh, there is no, you know, fixed answer, and it's up to our own agency to figure it out as we go, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, I expect that's probably what she means. So yeah. let's let's wrap up here. We've got a lot more other things we could talk to. We go on for hours, but uh, uh, in this current format i try to keep it to an hour a little over ah that's right yeah let's get you to wrap a little bit on uh i don't know if it's attention's the right world word but you know one of the things i loved about sand talk was that you take a at least the two lens approach the indigenous approach and the complexity approach uh and you know you talked about in on this podcast about the fact that you know you're you hate to be pushed off your rational, reasonable, your rational uh, stool <laughs> by, uh, you know, bad dope, right? And stuff like that. Uh, and so, that, you know, this is this, this I think is very close to the real tension on as we try to figure out the way forward. Mm. You know, we know that game A, this crazed money on money maximizing machine that has no breaks, has probably more than outlived its usefulness. Uh, and yeah. it's time to do something else. On the other hand, when I look, when I put on a purely indigenous hat and say, hmm, right, am I really willing to give up antibiotics, solar energy, modern dentistry, uh, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones? What the fuck, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Game A produced a lot of stuff that was good. You, you didn't <laughs> you didn't mention anything in that list that I that I want to keep <laughs> anyway. You know, I- <laughs> Yeah. Antibiotic? Ah, <laughs> uh, I, I don't like the six months after I have it. Yeah, it's it better than dying. It though. might be good to get you through the the, the painful bit, but um, you know, you have a, a really shitty time after that. Quite literally, um, sometimes. Yeah, but there, there are other things uh, we can use for that. This, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of plants that we can use for that here. Um, you know, for the same things. I mean, depending on what kind of infection it is too. It's, so it's not just this bloody A-bomb of antibiotics. You know, it depends. Is it a is it an infection in the blood? Is it in the bone? Is it in the skin? Is it systemic and just popping some popping up a problem here? Uh, or like in one, one little location? Or It's, it's all a, a lot more complex than that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, not a huge fan of any of these solutions that just carpet bombs everything into submission. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I mean, the, the scientific method is a beautiful thing, but um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of the variable way that that's applied <laughs> in, in the pharmaceutical world. You know, you never know what you're going to get there. It is true that, uh, you know, they tend to be brute force. And as you say, when you do an, uh, a serious course, antibiotics uh, probably kills a good percentage of your gut flora, which is a big percentage of what you are actually about. And you probably aren't right for a few months thereafter. Yeah, that's it. 
And look, I, I don't think, um, you know, moving away from, you know, having these massive, ridiculous, world-killing extractive systems, you know, means going back to some mythical, ridiculous picture of a primitive past red of to- in tooth and claw and all that sort of thing at all. Um, you know, that, that's just not my experience of that world. And, um, you know, things adapt and change, you know, all the time. And I imagine, uh, you know, I imagine that the cultures of transition that arise out of this will, will look very different. But, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm really comfortable with um, cognitive dissonance, Jim. And I think that's, um, that's, that's just why I really enjoy my encounters with game, the Game B community. Uh, because I think that pretty much, if I had to pick one thing that that characterized everybody, you know, you were saying general principles. I think that that's one of them. It's you know to be comfortable with sitting with um, you know two conflicting uh, ideas at once. Uh, to be able to sit with that uh, easily, you know, without your feeling your heart rate increase, without feeling like you've <laughs> you know I got to spare you now or something because <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really quite enjoying that. Well, that's cool. I'm going to wrap it right there. I think that's a, uh, a very interesting summary of where we're at, which is we have all of us have many ideas and, and things that are influencing us and that, you know, staying in cognitive dissonance right now is probably the right thing as we try to figure out what it all, what it means or actually let's, I'll, I'll retract that. I never try to figure out what it all means. I try to figure out what's the next reasonable step to move us in a better direction. Mm. Uh, and, and what's you what's useful? Yeah, what's useful, goddammit? The rut word, useful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tyson, again, a tr- as always, just a, a joy to talk with you. Uh, you know, there are days when I say, man, how, how can it be that we're, you know, see my brother by a different mother or what? But whenever I talk to you, I just feel like such a, uh, even though we disagree about all kinds of shit, I don't give two fucks about that. Uh, the yeah. fact that we somehow seem compatible at some special higher level, I just love. Well, there's there's some highly unlikely thing going on because that emu's come around to your house. So um, something's happening. We'll keep exploring it, bros. I will meditate on that. I'll let you know what I find out. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.